somebody who uh, comes in to rectify a problem or, or a, a lost situation to turn something around, some, somebody to come in and clean up the mess, uh, somebody to make things right. It's said that our government has fixers covertly that you don't ever hear about but who go into situations to rectify it. There are corporations that hire fixers to come in and change the culture, turn things around. There are sports franchises who call people in to change things around. Certain sports franchises need it more than others. All too familiar. Sometimes um, we feel like we need a fixer for a life, a particular life. Something that would we desire, something that would come in and correct things, to, to reset things, to, to take that life and just make things right. Can they come into a life and make it right? See, because a lot of stuff in life, a lot of stuff in your life, it gets broken. It really gets messed up. It gets turned around. It gets out of whack. Sometimes we're not even sure how it happened, but it gets bent. It gets missed. It gets ruined. And the sense is that it kind of becomes, it's beyond remedy. Some of you, some of you came here. Some of you came here recently. Some of you came here today. Some of you come back to church or trying to come to God because on some level you have, you have a, you know that something, you just want your life to get straightened out. You just keep saying, I got to get my life straightened out. Pearl Jam did a song a couple of years ago called The Fixer. And in the song, they said, when something's broke, I want to put a, a bit of fixing on it. When something's bored, I want to put a little exciting on it. If something's low, I want to put a little high on it. When something's lost, I want to fight to get it back again. And so we hear that God can do some of that. That God can come into a life and he can have an effect on it that that he uses words like wholeness and restoration. He uses words like correction and cleansing. He, he uses words like making us healthy. It's coming into Christmas season, and even Scrooge said to the ghost of Christmas future, a life can be made right. Maybe God could do that. And so for a few weeks, we're going to lead up to Christmas. We're going to say, okay, if you're at all in that situation, we just have a desire to say, can my life be made right? How do I make things right in my life? How do, I, how do, how do things get fixed? We're going to ask how that kind of happens. And we'll talk about how it happens in various ways. And today we're going to start off where I believe the Bible would start off with it. And that is when it, we're, we're using this phrase, that coming around to your past. How do you do that? How do, how do things get made right? If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to a story. It's in John chapter 4 in the New Testament. So if you've got a Bible, just join me there. If not, you can just listen and follow along. I'm going to read one story. I'm going to refer to another story in the Old Testament. Then we're going to quote some other passages of Scripture to kind of ask that question and apply it to our lives. Now, this is actually a fairly famous story. It's called the woman at the well story. Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman. There's a lot of history here, a lot of having to do with cultural differences and a lot having to do with national, nationalism and things like that. What we're going to really do t- today is just focus on the heart of something that Jesus does with this woman. Because for our purposes this morning, this woman is a spiritual seeker. 
She's a woman for who she has a woman with a, a past. She's a woman with history. She's a woman who who has a need for to, for things to be made right. Jesus encounters her, and the way he makes things right illustrates something. Now, I'm going to summarize part of it and read part of it, but in John chapter 4, it says in verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water at a well. Jesus is there. His disciples have gone into town to buy groceries. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Which, if you study this, you know that that's uh, for a man to talk to a woman without her husband there. It's, it's, uh, he's breaking cultural mores in order to do it. He's, he's valuing her more than her culture does. But he, he asked her that question. And then it says in verse Hey, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? There was no association, says, between those two in verse 9. Verse 10, Jesus answered her. Now, Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to move toward her life. He's going to say, you realize there's something I can do for you. I can make things right for you. That's the summation of what he's about to say. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's using the metaphor that's right in front of him. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. How can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus, he said, you know, he's not talking about physical stuff. He's talking about her heart. He's talking about her life. He's talking about making things right for her. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, the physical water in front of her, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him, it's like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, she kind of gets it, sir. Maybe she gets it. Well, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and won't have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still talking the physical, but she's realizing there's something different about this guy. And then Jesus says something to her. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. Now, if you know the story at all, you know why he does that. What Jesus does right here, he wants to make things right for her, but in order to do it, he has to invoke something about this woman. He has to address where she's been, who she is, where she's come from. He knows her history, and so he delves into that by saying, go get your husband, knowing very well that's going to open the door on her past. He's going to go somewhere that she does not want him to go, doesn't even know he knows how to get there. But he does that. Now, see, there's, let me just pause there. There's a prevailing wisdom that we have in our culture about our past, about your past and about my past. And we say that we should be looking to the future and we should be living in the present. And the prevailing wisdom is that your past is fairly irrelevant. You don't focus on the past. We say that, right? We don't want to focus on the past. Why? Because you can't do anything about your past. Isn't that right? You can't change it. You can't go back and undo it. What, so we use words like, what's done is done. Forget the past. Or the past is in the past. Mark McGuire was famous for standing in front of government and saying, I am not here to talk about the past. But Jesus... When he wants to make something right for this woman, he invokes her past. You know, there's a, that's a pattern that's repeated throughout the scripture. When God wants... All right, so look, are you tryptophaned out? Don't, don't fall asleep on me today, okay? All right. When God wants to come into a life, and, he's, and if, if you want that, if you want him to make things right in your life, and a lot of us would say, yeah, I would like him to reset things. I'd like for him to kind of correct things. 
In order for that to happen, God regularly, what he does, that he moves into life, he says, okay, now let's open the door to the past. It happened in the life of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where he had sin in his past. He had things that were, were unresolved about his past. He committed adultery. He was guilty of setting a man up to be murdered. He's the king of Israel, and he's trying to see God's blessing in his life. And Nathan the prophet, we, you heard a, a message on this if you were around this summer when we went through the prophets shows up in his life and what he does was he says we got to deal with the past he does through he's not invited to do it so he tells a story to evoke a response from david and then he penetrates in the name of god and says we got to deal with your past there's something we got to deal with there's something we have to do there we have to invoke the past and there's a reason for that for you and for me whether or not we like it your past where you have been what you have done it emits an ongoing effect on your present. Your character today has been formed because and influenced by your past. The choices you and I have made, good and bad, have formed some of how we think today, what our tendencies are, what, what our character is like. You've heard it said in psychological circles, and I think Dr. Phil says it, but it's true. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Your past has an effect on you. You have blockages in your life, and I do too, that are there because of decisions we've made and scar tissue we've got from past decisions that we've made. So much of how you relate to your world, much of how you interact with people, much of what you tolerate how you interpret things around you, your choices you make are directly related to how you've navigated your past, including your status with God. Your view of God today is affected by how you have viewed Him in the past, what He has done, what you have done, and what you've done to deal with it in your past. You hear about deathbed confessions. Why do people make deathbed confessions? Psychologists say, well, it has to do with their guilt. It has to do sometimes with facing eternity. This week, a 49-year-old major train robbery in Great Britain came out in the news again because a member of the gang that was part of that train robbery made a deathbed confession. Big Jim Hussey is his name. He was a masked man, and he bludgeoned the driver, the engine driver. He wounded him in ways that he continued to live, but he did not ever fully recover. Died seven years later. Jim Hussey came out when he was on his deathbed in hospice care, and he said, I need to let it be known. I need to tell you I'm the one who bludgeoned that man. I'm the one who did it. Why would somebody like that do that? Because his past had been affecting him all along. It had robbed him of something. It had formed something with him. He needed to deal with it. Somehow he kind of knew that. When God says, okay, if you want me to make things right, I want to make things right now. We need to open the door to your past. This is what he encounters with a whole lot of us. He encounters coping mechanisms we have that we all have developed about how we deal with our past. This one, the one in John chapter 4 is very, very simple. Jesus says, go get your husband. And come back. And she has one simple sentence that this woman replies. Verse 17. I have no husband. She replied. That's all. I have no husband. She's technically right. Now I'm interpreting this a little bit, but I believe that she, what she's doing there is she's putting up the deflector shield that she would typically put up about her past. 
She's not going into detail. She's not acknowledging anything. She simply says, I have no husband. Jesus knows that. But it illustrates something about what we do when it comes to opening the door and taking a look at where we have been and what we have done and what the standing and and influence of our past has been on us. We, We cope with that in numerous ways. Some of us cope with it with what we could call redactionist history, reconstructionism. We look at our past and we convince ourselves and we convince others of things about what we have done and where we've been, how we thought, how we behaved, that kind of tempers it, that kind of relieves any sense of real guilt about it. Because what we, what we do is we, we, we actually retrain our thinking to remember it differently. You've seen people do this. They describe something that happened to them and they put it in such a way that they have become the victim of what happened there, not the agent. They've removed culpability. They say they, they, they tell the story so many times that it begins to, the picture actually gets lodged in their head. They pass a lie detector test. I was provoked into that behavior. I was excused for that behavior. I was not the one to blame for that. It wasn't as egregious as it might, it wasn't that bad. Where I was, I was not ill-motivated with what I said. I was not, I, I was not it wasn't malicious what I, what I was doing there. Some of you have seen people in your world do that. Can I say this gently? Some of you have done that. Some of us have done that. In order to live with ourselves, in order to feel okay about ourselves, we have changed the past in our mind. I worked with a young man once who called me and said that he had been arrested. And he said, it's, it's a total misunderstanding, a total misunderstanding. And they say I attacked this girl. And they say that I for- was trying to force myself on her. I'm being charged. And I met with him. And he was in tears. And he was talking about how the circumstances were such. That, and he, expla- he painted a picture of the scenario of what happened. He went to trial. And witnesses came forward. And told a very, very different story. And he was charged and found guilty of gross sexual imposition. He went to prison. He went to prison declaring that it wasn't like everybody else who saw it thought. He coped by positioning himself as being somebody who was misunderstood. Somebody who was put in a bad position. Somebody whose choices and motives were, were, were not comprehended by people. We do that with our past. We, we, sometimes we avoid it or we diminish it. We talk about it's irrelevant or off limits. Can't you just hear the tone of this woman? Well, she goes, I have no husband. End of conversation, right? Doesn't it feel that way when you read it? Get your husband. I have no husband. We're not going there. We don't talk about anything else about it. That's enough for you. Blockages go up. We avoid, we diminish it. We say that it's irrelevant or we just get self-delusional about it. It is hard to watch. Isn't it hard to watch someone who is self-deluded about where they've been and what they've done? About the level of guilt involved? About their level of responsibility? It's hard for God to watch too. He had his prophets talk about it. Here's Jeremiah 8, chapter 11. Or 8, chapter 8, verse 11. Talking about God's people. And he says, They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. People are prone to do this. They, they say, no, no, it's, 
Everything's fine. No harm done. I'm okay. It's been dealt with. Peace, peace. When there is no peace. Let me just say this straight. If we want God to straighten out our life, if you're here today and you say, I would like Him to reset my life, I'd like to see Him make things right. And when you say that, Or think about it, there are particular parts of your life that especially come to the forefront. And there's a relationship there, or there's a brokenness there, or there's just a a state of mind you're in, and there's an uncomfortableness about your life. Whatever it is that's going through your mind, when you say that, you say, I would like God to do that. In order for things to be made all right, understand that God will move into our lives and He will deal with your unaddressed history. He'll say, that's how I'm going to make it right. We're going to come back around to your past, which is affecting you today. You may have convinced yourself, I may have convinced myself, that that my past choices have been resolved and and I'm okay, but they still affect us if they've been not entirely addressed. That's what's going on for David in Psalm 32. David, who's confronted by Nathan and and who says, you sinned. And David says this about his own life in Psalm 32. When I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable. I groaned all day long. You know what? I bet he didn't let on he did. He's the king of Israel. He's fighting wars. He's leading a nation. He's functional. But he says, this is what was going on inside me. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Get your husband. It's an invitation. Not just to find somebody. It's an invitation to open up what's been untreated, unaddressed. Get your husband. We think that that's not necessary in life. We think that what's past is in the past. You know how Bob Marley died? You know how he died? Everybody thinks, oh, it was drug overdose, right? Because that's kind of what that dude did. It's not how Bob Marley died. Bob Marley died of cancer. And in about 1977, he had a, he injured his toenail, the toenail of his right big toe during a soccer game. The injury didn't heal especially well. And as they watched it, they saw cells form that looked troublesome. It was a type of melanoma. He was diagnosed in 1977. It was suggested that he needed to deal with it. He had to have the cancerous part removed. He refused to do it. He said, it's fine. Then they said it needed to be amputated. No, no, it was fine. They advised him to keep doing that. And by 1980, the cancer had spread to his liver, his stomach, and his brain. And he died in 1981 at the age of 36 years old. Your past, if you don't deal with it, what it does, it has an effect. You don't just hide infection and it go away like this. It manifests itself. It metastasizes. It penetrates into parts of our lives. To open the door, to revisit things that you feel like you've closed the door on, things that have been complete, you think you've dealt with, to whatever degree you've shut them out of your life, to open that door, hear this. It can be one of the most excruciatingly painful moments of your life. 
to go back and say, I need to rethink how culpable I might have been. I need to think of what part I need to deal with about that. What needs a touch from outside myself to bring healing? What needs to be amputated? What needs to be surgically dealt with? Go get your husband, Jesus says. My grandfather on my mother's side died when I was uh, 13 years old. And I didn't really know him very well. He lived in another state. I would see him occasionally. And I was always a little uncomfortable when we met him because he was a double amputee of both of his legs, one above the knee, one below the the knee. The reason my grandfather was in that state was that my grandfather was an alcoholic and he was also a diabetic. And he refused to deal with either of those issues. They came together in his life until gangrene began to take parts of his legs. He had legs amputated several times farther up until he had two false legs, prosthetics. And he died in his 50s because, in part, because he was not willing to address the things that he had done and who he was and the direction it was going. Now God steps in. Jesus approaches this woman. She didn't ask, by the way, She didn't ask him to make things right until he offered, said, I'm willing to. Jesus comes and he offers to do something. Did you see what he offered this woman? He said, if you knew what it was, you could ask for the kind of water that would come into your life and it would produce a life that refreshes you forever. I want to make things right in your life. See, God offers a full spiritual inside-out cleansing to people. He offers to be the fixer. He offers to do things right. He says it over and over again. This is his appeal to his people all along. In in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Now come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. David acknowledges this in Psalm 51 when he's talking about what happened when he dealt with his sin finally and what God was willing to do for him. Psalm 51, 7 and 8, purify me from my sins. He's speaking to God. And I'll be clean, wash me, and I will be, this was the phrase that they used to just say completely extracted. The poison's extracted, the penalty extracted, the sin. Whiter than snow. That was as white as they could picture Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. God offers to be that kind of source to us. He says, I've got the, the only means by which it can happen. Not by reforming you. Not by trying to make you do enough penance that you make yourself better. I come into your life and I will accomplish it for you. By extracting and absorbing the penalty on my chosen vessel. That's what Ephesians 53 is talking about when it says this about Jesus. He, it was our, is this foretelling him before he came. It is our weaknesses he carried. It's our sorrows that weigh him down. There's a transfer of our past onto him. He's, he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we are healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's path to follow our own and yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sin of us all. That's what God offers to do. Not because we deserve it, just because He loves us. 
He's willing to do that. And what he does is he removes then the effect even of what our past has steered us to. He removes the guilt that influences us. He removes the ramifications of our, how we think and how we feel. And then you get this, and it almost sounds like poetry when God talks about it. Micah talked about it in Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. Look at this. You will tread our sins underfoot. It's a great picture. And then you'll hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. John 4 again. This is what Jesus offers to do. He offers a path to freedom, restitution. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this physical water, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him, whoever will open up their, their past to me, and let me have my effect on him. That's what he's talking about. Whoever does that will will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's talk practically. I want God in my life. I want him to make things right. I want him to do something that will have the, eventually have the effect that, think that I am not haunted by stuff. I am not adversely affected. I'm, the weight I carry, the, the bag of rocks is relieved from me. I want God to make things right. God says, okay, let's deal with your past. And he says, the first thing we do, I'm just going to give you a handful of phrases. The first thing is to admit and expose it fully. You see in chapter 4, verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Jesus is asking her to admit it and to expose it. Can I tell you that I believe that this woman, it doesn't say a whole lot about her after this encounter, but there's implications about what happened. I believe this woman responded. I believe that she admitted and exposed it because here's a hint of it in verse 28. When she left her water jar, the woman went back to the town and she said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, first of all, he didn't tell her everything he, she had ever done. But what he did was he circled the part that says, this represents what has not been brought out. This represents who you are and where you've been. In her mind, it might as well be everything she ever did. Could this be the Christ? Something. This woman has been, probably she's been saying, I don't have a husband. But now she gets an invitation and she goes to the town and she says, come meet somebody who's exposed everything about myself. She's admitting that it's true. She's exposing it herself. David, after he's confronted with his sin with Bathsheba by Nathan, he has a response. And again, Psalm 32 says this, then I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. When he's confronted by Nathan, he actually says, and this is probably in the company of some people. There's probably not too private an audience with the king. There are other people around most likely who attend to him. And in 2 Samuel 12, 13, then David says to Nathan, 
I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. Why is it so hard for us to open the back door again and look back to where we've been to recall the choices we've made and to say, okay, I have no excuse. Oh, I could blame other people and I've spent my life doing it and I say there were other contributing factors, but you know what? There's something really wrong with me. I did this. I chose to do that. I chose to be who I am. It was my choice. You know why? Probably for fear. Shame. We believe that we believe that we will incur that. We have. We've seen it happen. We we don't the, the idea of renouncing self just doesn't compete, compute in this day and age where we're told you make the most of yourself and be all you can be and self-actualize and, and you know you can go, go forward in life. But here's something that you just have got to hear today. This is, this is what's true about your God, my God, the one who made, the one whose who's life breath resides within you to give you life. This is what's true of his character. This is what's true of his attitude. It's reflected in what Jesus did in chap, John chapter 4. There is something true about God, that when God looks at what you, where you've been and what you've done, regardless what, his, what ha, you have done, when it is brought out, he will never shame you for bringing it out. He will never devalue you for it. As a matter of fact, God's kind of matter of fact about it. Because he, he, already, he already knows. You know, if you're a parent and, you're, and you know what your child did, you, you did, you saw them do it, and you're just waiting for them to, to come out and confess it to them. When they finally say, okay, I did it. You get a little bit of a feeling of what God feels. Most of us don't shame our children if that happens. What we do is say, well, oh, I'm so glad you're finally willing at least to say it. Now we can move forward. There's a relief to it. There's a matter of factness to it. I love this little part of Psalm 103, which is one of my favorite psalms. And it, it, look at this in Psalm 103, verse 12 and following. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I love that part, right? That's what he does. That's what God is willing to do with our past. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Oh, I love that part too. Now look, look what else it says. For he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we're dust. See what God's saying there? It doesn't freak him out. He, know, he, he already knows. Look, we say something a lot around here. And I'll say it again today. When you walk in here, if you're new around here, look, we, uh, we know your secret. It's our secret too. We, we don't, we're not trying to fake anybody out. Right? We know that you are, you are a mess. We know that. We know that. It's not a matter of if you're a mess or not. Don't come in here and think everybody else is okay, but I'm a mess. I don't belong here. No, no. Everybody, look around. Everybody here is real. No, they're really screwed up. Really screwed up. We mean it when we say that. Look, I know what's in my heart. I know what I'm capable of thinking. I know the thoughts that if they were projected on the screen, I would be horrified for you to see the thoughts that go through my mind. I'm a guy who's trying to love God. I'm a guy who's trying to follow him. I've served him for years, and I'm still screwed up inside. I need something outside myself for cleansing. You're in a room full of people like that. God knows that. 
He simply invites you to just come in and admit the mess fully and completely. Would you stop trying to hide it? Would you stop trying to spin doctor it? Let's just address it. Look at the cleansing that can be done when you do. That's God's attitude. Everybody's got a dark side. If I show it to you now, will it make you run away? Or will you stay even if it hurts? Even if I try to push you out, will you return and remind me who I really am? Please remind me who I really am. Please don't run away. Just tell me that you'll stay. And God says, I will. Jesus, as a matter of fact, this woman, yeah, I know you don't have a husband. Now, this is, I mean, in this day and age, five husbands and living with another man, this is major. I mean, this is tramps, boy, more than ever. This is serious business in this culture. She probably was shamed by a lot of people. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. You've had five. The man you're living with now isn't your husband. I know. Not another peep out of him. Rather matter of fact about it. I know. Are you willing to deal with it? There comes, you've heard the phrase, there's a moment of truth, right? We want God to make things right with our past. You and I, we need to face a moment of truth. A real moment of truth. Where we say to ourselves, we say to God, and we even say to any others who might be around, I have no excuse. I am not going to spin this. I have the, here's what I did that has no justification to it. Here's who I am that is just, this is as bad as it looks. I did this. It's on me. Can I just gently again say it to you? Some of us in this room have never yet come to that moment of truth about some things in the past. Making things right starts with inviting that moment to happen in your heart. And when it comes, then the next thing is to accept full responsibility for it. That's what, that's what David did in, in Psalm 51. Look at, look at what he, he says this to God. Against you, you only have I sinned, and I've done what's evil in your sight. And now, look what he says. So you're, you're approved right when you speak, and you're justified when you judge. You know what he's saying there? Whatever I get, I deserve. Whatever you decide, I have no recourse. I have no defense. I'm not going to plead not guilty and then hope to plea bargain this thing down. I am guilty as charged, and whatever gets decided, whatever ramifications and consequences come my way, I will accept them because I am a sinner, and I have I've accomplished this. I did this. What you say I pay, I will pay. When we Later on in the series, we're going to look at a man named Zacchaeus, and he says, when he, when he has his moment, he says, if I have stolen from anybody, I will go back and I'll make that right. I'm going to be responsible for what I've done. Even if it costs me, I will do that. David's prayer resonates that. And then, it's not just a matter of confession being good for the soul. Something has to happen with our past. Where we have been and who we are and what we've done needs to be taken and it needs to be plunged beneath the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is only one source on earth that can take that and can actually spiritually transform and rectify, make that thing right. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews talks about the power of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a 
an innocent, substituting his innocent blood for the sake of a non-innocent, a guilty party. In Hebrews 9.14, it says this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? David dealt with it. David confessed his sin when he was confronted, and he says, I've got to deal with my past. And then in Psalm 51, he goes on to say this to God. So God created me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Psalm 51 is worth reading again to see how this happens in a life. To consciously, directly say to God, not just, oh, I feel guilty about my sin, or I confess my sin, or I'm going to try to go around and repay people for my sin, but to take my past and present it to the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to invoke it on that and say, this is my guilt, this is, and if you are willing, Jesus Christ, I present it to you. Submerge this in the blood sacrifice of the cross because I believe by faith that that has an eternal power on it that will bring righteousness and cover it, that will bury it, that will absolve it of its, of its guilt and of its shame and of its penalty. And then... Part of this whole process then, I believe, is to acknowledge your past openly as something that has been restored, that has been part of you. See, we're given a new identity in Jesus Christ. I'm I'm named a child of God. I am named somebody who, when he looks at me, I'm cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus. He looks at me and there's no condemnation for my sin. But that doesn't change the fact that I am somebody who carries some scars, somebody who carries some marks of a life. And those marks become the tool of God in my life to remind me of from where I've come and to show other people an amazing amount of grace that God has in a life. So we don't forget our sinful history. We redeem it. One of, I believe this is on my heart, one of the key marks of true repentance in a person's life, real repentance for sin, is what they do with their past sin when it comes to how often it gets brought out. If somebody hides it and diminishes it and tries to not, and never deal with it or never look at it or never let anybody know that it's there, that says to me there's something still trying to be contained, still trying to be hidden. I'm not talking about grandstanding our sin. I'm not talking about sensationalizing it or wallowing in it. But where we've been and who we are becomes part of what we wear as part of our redemption tapestry that God forms. To be able to say, this is where I've been. This is what I've done. This, this, my history is part of who I am. I think for all the pluses and, and minuses of, of addiction groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, I think there's something they do really, really well. And that is, and many of you have walked through these things, is to say, you don't deny that who you've been. You walk around and you say, I, what, are you an alcoholic? Yeah, recovering, 20 years sober, but I'm still who I am. It's part of the mark of where I've been. And when you bring the power of God into that and the power of Jesus Christ in it, it points to that and says, this is what he does. This is how he makes things right in my past. Look at the life of Paul the Apostle as an example. I mean, Paul was somebody who, we, we know him as the guy who, who you know, brought the gospel to Europe and, you know, 
he was the main instrument. He, was a, he wrote for God for crying out loud. But his whole life, when Paul's talking about what's happened in his life, he says, let me tell you who I am. Here's an example of it in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1. I used to scoff at the name of Christ. I hunted down his people, harming them in every way I could. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how kind and gracious the Lord was. He filled me completely with faith and the love of Christ Jesus. This is a true saying, and everyone should believe it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he's not just, he says, and see who you're looking at? He says, I was the worst of them all. He means it. He's willing to talk about it. If that's not enough for you, look what he says in Romans chapter 7 about himself. I know I am rotten through and through so far as my old nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. So he says, oh, what a miserable person I am. He's not wallowing in it. But he says, who will set me free from this life that is dominated by sin? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Acknowledges openly where he's been as part of his story. That is how our past gets redefined. It's how, our, how your story gets redeemed. Is it becomes part of the mark of who I am. Every one of us, if we're really repentant and been cleansed by this, then we have a freedom that says, oh, I, I can tell you what I've done, and it's bad. I can tell you how I failed. I can tell you what my sin is right now because I'm free from it. And all it does is point to the amazing grace that God gives in a life. I've seen this happen in my own cell group. I I love when this happens. And a member of our cell group just recently said, okay, guys, look, I'm going to just tell you the whole story. Didn't make it sound sensational. Said it with tears and said, this is where I've walked. This is what I did. Here's some things happened to me. And then here's some choices I made. And I'm guilty. And I have been cleansed. And God has brought healing into my life. When that person shared that, I wanted to trust Jesus all over again. I wanted to run and just embrace him again and say, you are so amazing. You are so good. When God does that in a life, he begins the process of making things right, of being the fixer of who we are because he's addressed where we've been and what we've done. There's another phrase that we use sometimes about our lives. We say we need to come clean. Kind of means to tell the truth, confess what ha- happened, come clean, admit our guilt. It's not a bad phrase. Come clean maybe really means come to Christ and be cleansed. Some of us in the room this Thanksgiving weekend give thanks for a whole lot of things, but what the most grateful thing you can have to give thanks for might happen right now. Where you say, I've been on a journey. I've been trying to make things right. I have to, I've not addressed, I've not admitted and acknowledged my part in what, where I've been, and it is time to come clean. I'm going to start that with God. I'm going to present my history. I'm going to name it for what it is. I'm coming clean. When that happens, that means we expose and admit what, who we are and what we've, where we've been, what we've done. We accept full responsibility for it. We plunge it beneath the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ by faith, calling on his name. 
And then we acknowledge that it's part of you that's been redeemed. When it happens, God does something with our past. He makes it right. He doesn't undo it. He cleanses it. He frees us from it. He makes it part of our story that can be a positive part of our future. Revelation 1 says this about Him. All praise to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding His blood for us. He's made us His kingdom and His priests who serve before God His Father. Give to Him everlasting glory. Jesus said to the woman, Get your husband. She deals with the fact that she doesn't have him. He acknowledges that. He said, she goes and says to people, this man taught me everything I've done. He, he, he told it. He exposed it. They bring him back. And it says at the end of the story, in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him. He stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And then they said to the woman, we're no longer believed just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Making things right is when you know for yourself. When you walk through that process yourself. And I invite you today. We're going to sing a couple more songs in response. And even in that time, you may just say, it's time. I've got to open the door on this. I want him to make things right. I invite you to do that. Let's pray together. Even now, Father, we know that you look right into our lives and you see the whole spectrum of our past. You know exactly where we've been. You know what we've said, what we thought. You know our true motives. You know what the real story is. You know, God, that there are some of us here who we've worked really, really hard to cope with our choices by reassigning them meaning and remembering them differently and blaming other people for or institutions for it. You know the true condition of our heart. And I praise you that you are not recoiling when you know that that it doesn't surprise you and that you are somebody who can come in and you can make right where we've been. You can reset ourselves and our course, our perspective when we see your blood saturate the sinful sacrifice and cleanse it. And we pray that even in this moment, even as we sing back to you, that you would use this time to draw some of us who maybe for the first time even need to say there's something I need to deal with. Some of us know you. We've been forgiven, but there's something we still need to deal with. There are others of us who have never really come to this moment of truth. God, would you make this that moment? Would you help us open our hearts and know that there is full cleansing, full acceptance, full freedom given because of your sacrifice on the cross? Here's as we respond. We pray through our Savior Jesus. Amen.